Hello everyone, this is Paul Aronowitz bringing you another story slam from the April 2018 Grand Rounds that was done for our Department of Internal Medicine here at UC Davis Medical Center. This storyteller is Dr. Calvin Hirsch, uh, who is a longtime attending at UC Davis. He is a geriatrician. Uh, he does a lot of general medicine consultation work as well as inpatient wards and outpatient clinic. He is just an all-around renaissance man, and I hope that you enjoy this story as much as I did, because I loved it, as I did all of the stories that were told in April. So enjoy, and here comes Dr. Hirsch to tell his story. So this is, this is entitled, To Sleep, Perchance to Dream. Hamlet utters these words as he ruminates about whether he will still dream after death. For patients with progressive supranuclear palsy, or PSP, to sleep, perchance to dream, becomes a hope. PSP, also known as Steele-Richardson-Olszewski syndrome, is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder that is cataloged as a variant frontotemporal dementia, although it clinically uh, is part of the spectrum of Parkinsonian diseases. Unlike Parkinson's disease, response to levodopa is minimal to none, and to date, no effective treatment has been found for the major symptoms. Patients with PSP experience ax an axial rigidity, um, causing them to stand hyper-erect and shuffle uh, like an automaton-like zombie from The Walking Dead. Patients lose the ability to look up or down. Swallowing is affected in all cases. And REM sleep, the phase of sleep that produces dreams, disappears. Without REM sleep, patients develop debilitating chronic fatigue. Dementia may occur toward the end, but for most of the disease course, the patient remains acutely aware of being trapped inside a progressively immobile body that won't obey the brain's commands. Steve, who was diagnosed with PC PSP three years earlier, and his wife Janet, not their real names, enrolled in the geriatrics clinic because they believed that the complexity of PSP required longer appointment times and a function-oriented interdisciplinary approach to patient care. Although only 63, Steve, Steve's disease qualified him for the geriatrics clinic. He was assigned to a primary care resident, but I wanted becoming the de facto PCP. Janet was an effective cheerleader and an ardent advocate for her husband. She read extensively about the disease and was the chair of the local chapter of the National Cure PSP Advocacy Group. In the beginning, there was a fair amount we could do to treat his untreatable illness. We ordered a coughing assist device to help him raise secretions. We prescribed a thickening agent to be added to thin liquids so we could swallow them without choking. Home physical therapy made recommendations for home modifications like a raised toilet seat and grab bars in the shower. Steve had been a successful attorney, so Janet was able to bring him to Hawaii so he didn't feel trapped at home. The ordeal of caring for Steve day and night undoubtedly was taking its toll on Janet, but she was endlessly upbeat. Steve was peeling from a sunburn when I saw him next. I teased him about needing to wear a baseball cap and a Hawaiian shirt the next time he traveled to the Big Island. No shirt, he telegraphed. He also loved good food and wine, but his progressive difficulty swallowing began to make mealtime a chore. Everything had to be ground and soft so it could slither down without making him choke. A glass of his favorite CV Cabernet Sauvignon, mine, mine too, just didn't taste right when Thicket gave it the consistency of tomato puree and it had to be slurped down with a straw. Meals took at least an hour and a half 
after factoring in breaks, and Janet always fed him. Steve lost weight. Steve, Janet, the resident, and I talked on more than one occasion about his preferences for end-of-life care, even though statistically he was years away from dying. He didn't want CPR or intubation. That was clear from the start. When swallowing became difficult, we talked about a feeding tube, which would provide the calories he needed to have the strength to take trips to Hawaii or outings to the Crocker Art Gallery. No way, he said in his slow, barely audible speech. He doesn't want any artificial life support, Janet chimed in. He doesn't want his life prolonged. He's suffering. He slowly reached out and took her hand. She leaned over and kissed him on the lips. They were a team, a really good one. Gee, I said, looking at how she kissed him. Uh, uh, would you like me to leave the room to give you some privacy? <laughs> Janet guffawed, and Steve gave his characteristic laugh, an exhalation of air that sounded like a strangled groan. <sighs> Laughter is a powerful way to tap positive emotions, wrote Norman Cousins, American essayist and editor of Saturday Review. Cousins famously forced himself to laugh during reruns of Candid Camera, as he struggled to rehabilitate from ankylosing spondylitis. Laughter probably was the best medicine Steve received. We couldn't prescribe it, but we learned to dispense it. At the next geriatrics clinic visit, Jan Janet maintained her upbeat demeanor as she reported, Steve doesn't want to suffer anymore and needs something stronger to help him sleep. Is there something you can prescribe, like a strong sleeping pill or a pain pill? Yeah, said Steve. I thought I knew where this was going. We had already been through every sleeping aid available after he failed citalopram, which is considered to be the most effective agent to treat REM-deprived sleep disorder. I must have appeared so... Uh, so uh, Steve was constantly exhausted from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed at night. I must have appeared shocked because Steve looked at me and laughed. <laughs> I was direct. What do you plan to do with the new pills since nothing we've tried has worked? <laughs> answered Steve. He knew that I knew what he planned to do with the prescription. You know I can't prescribe your, you medication that I know will be used to end your life. Neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course, reads the Hippocratic Oath. I could not recall what my medical school class wrote for its own version of the Hippocratic Oath, but I believed that not intentionally causing death was in it somewhere. There was an awkward silence as Janet formulated another tactic. How long would it take to die if Steve stopped eating? It's so hard for him to eat. Hard, he echoed. I replied that starvation would be a prolonged dying process, possibly months, if he had adequate fluid intake. I shouldn't have mentioned fluids. Janet and Steve looked at me as if I had discovered the cure for cancer. How long if he doesn't drink anything, she asked. I knew I was trapped. About a week, I said matter-of-factly. It was clear Steve was having increasingly difficulty ingesting enough fluid despite Janet's best efforts. His B1 to creatinine ratio had risen and was now greater than 30 to 1, a clear indicator of dehydration. Drinking so hard, Steve said. I became anxious. I had just blurted out a way for him to commit passive suicide after I refused to prescribe potentially lethal medication if taken an overdose. I tried to backpedal. You will get in be in great discomfort from severe thirst. He does not give up when he really wants something, Janet stated, looking directly at Steve. <sighs> he chuckled, and the faintest smile appeared on his otherwise mask-like faces. I told them that I would make a referral to hospice, 
but I doubted hospice would accept him for terminal PSP, since his condition only was going to be terminal, because he was clearly committing passive suicide. I still made the referral, and to this day I'm, I'm awed and pleased that our hospice program accepted him right away. Seven days later, Steve passed away in the comfort of his own bed with Janet, his two grown children, and several members of his PSP support group in attendance. Opiates and tranquilizers had helped to quell his discomfort toward the end. Janet later told me it was a good death, the kind of death he wanted. She thanked me for all the kindness my residents and I provided him. Despite her gratitude, I felt deeply conflicted. I had revealed the pathway to a suicide. Was this a violation of the version of the Hippocratic Oath I had taken as a graduating medical student? I felt I had somehow failed him, yet I also believed I had done nothing wrong. If I had withheld that bit of information about adequate fluids, would I have been guilty of maleficence by potentially prolonging his suffering? What is the role of the healer in managing untreatable conditions for a disease that is neither end stage nor eligible for legal assisted suicide? Norman Cousins once wrote, death is not the greatest loss in life. The greatest loss is what dies inside us while we live. I helped Steve laugh. I inadvertently helped him find a path to end his suffering, which is what he wanted. Was I ethical or unethical in my management? I don't know. Perhaps that's not relevant. Helping patients does not always require a drug or a procedure. Thank you. thank all of our storytellers today. That was excellent. And we'll see you again at the next Story Slam.